Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. And we're in the extra time. Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time. I'm Stephen Hewson. D-Day looms for New Zealand rugby and their deal with US tech giant Silver Lake. We'll discuss how that will all play out. We review the opening round of ANZ Netball Premiership and discuss whether the balance of power has shifted. And we head to Bermuda to talk to America's Cup winner Peter Burling as he heads back out on the water, this time for the opening race in the Sail GP Series. And gymnastics coaches are feeling battered and bruised in the wake of the review into their sport. Next week, New Zealand Rugby will vote on whether to go ahead with a proposed $460 million deal, which would give Silver Lake, a US tech company, a 15% stake in the game. But the deal has caused plenty of debate within the rugby fraternity. And we'll discuss that with RNZ rugby reporter Joe Porter and Wellington rugby player and commentator Alice Soper shortly. But first, we hear from the former chief executive of New Zealand rugby, David Moffat, who fears the deal will only lead to more meaningless games for the All Blacks in an effort to make a buck and ultimately degrade the brand. Silver Lake are not benefactors. You know, they're not going to pump a whole lot of money into New Zealand rugby without expecting a significant return. And I'm just struggling to see how how they can increase the revenue return to New Zealand rugby and ultimately to themselves um, that New Zealand rugby couldn't do on their own. After all, they're the biggest rugby brand in the world. They are possibly right up there with Manchester United and some of those other great sporting brands. There wouldn't be a door um, that uh, Robbo couldn't open um, to uh, to talk about um, raising money themselves. So that's the thing that I I am I'm concerned about um, is what happens if um, this you know this doesn't work out. And I think the other thing that I suppose worries me to a certain extent is we're seeing this huge backlash you know, in English football at the moment uh, and European football about the proposed football Super League. And that, and that's where, you know, clubs have sold their soul and they, they've just done a complete backflip. Is NZR caught between a rock and a hard place? They, they desperately need this cash injection and there's not really anywhere else to turn. Steve, they, they are, like like every rugby union in the world. I mean, because... Even prior to COVID, things were looking pretty difficult, especially with the implosion of Super Rugby, which was going to happen irrespective of COVID or not, because they just couldn't make up their mind what sort of format it should take. And people were turning off in droves. And I hope, really, for New Zealand rugby's sake, that they've chosen the right path to go down. And they will have 
presumably looked at all of the benefits and and done a risk benefit analysis, the risks associated with it. Because if 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 it doesn't translate into um, grassroots rugby like they say, uh, I mean, it could have the opposite effect, and that would be terrible. Fifteen percent. This seems to be the number that uh, is what mm. Silver Lake are going to get. But in reality, are they going to have more sway than 15%? Well, that's an interesting question, Stephen. I mean, if they don't get any sort of a return on fifth, on, on the percentage that they bought, um, you know, they may very well say, well, we want a bigger percentage and a bigger say. Because if they're not going to get the return that has been worked out, and spreadsheets are one thing, deliveries another, right? If they don't get that, the first place they'll look at is how many times can we get the All Blacks to play? Where can we get them to play? You know, are they going to be playing exhibition matches in the United States, for example? I have to say that, you know, as I said, whether it's now or whether it's in the future, you'll see the All Blacks playing more games and perhaps more meaningless games as well. And and that, to me, just devalues the greatest brand in rugby. That's David Moffat, the former chief executive of New Zealand Rugby. So will the Silver Lake deal be a golden goose or a millstone for New Zealand Rugby? To discuss this, I'm joined by RNZ Rugby correspondent Joe Porter and Wellington Pride player and commentator Alice Soper. Joe, first up, uh, there's been quite a divide over this deal. We've had leading <laughs> black ferns and all blacks um, speaking out against it. Um, well, I suppose first, is, is it going to go ahead in the first deal? I think so. I think uh, all the noise suggests that mediation has been relatively productive um, and that the Super Rugby franchises, the provincial unions, of course, the provincial unions being the one who have to uh, vote on it and have a majority of them support the deal, are all largely in support of it. They have a few sort of uh, concerns about certain points, but largely they know that New Zealand rugby and themselves need cash and they need it quickly and there's no better way to get it or as much of it as going down the Silver Lake Pass. So, look, I'm expecting it to, to get to be passed on Thursday at the uh, next Thursday at the AGM. And I'm also expecting uh, the Players Association to give it its approval as well after they've obviously had some gripes about certain things, one of them being the fact that it's the possibility the players might take a smaller percentage of NZR's overall total revenue should the deal go ahead. Given the comments from David Moffat, there might be a suggestion too they're going to end up playing more games. Presumably that Mm. would have been a factor... Absolutely, the Players Association have to look after player welfare and we're already being told that there's too many games in the calendar year that players are getting beat up. That's the reason we need to have All Blacks taking sabbaticals and coming back to Super Rugby and not doing pre-season, coming back to Super Rugby late and all those sorts of things. Uh, having to miss at least two Super Rugby games a year if we're in a full season, the All Blacks have a mandatory stand-down because they're already playing too much rugby. So that has to be a massive concern for the Players Association and the players themselves. Of course, uh, it's not necessarily what will happen. New Zealand rugby tend to think that the extra revenue that Silver Lake will be will produce will then will you know therefore eventually benefit the players and and create a larger pool of money for the players to take their pay from. So there's a couple of divides there, but look, I am expecting this deal to get across the line. Alice, what's your take on this Silver Lake deal? Well, my gut feeling is that people are inherently uncomfortable every time we remind them of the fact that rugby is actually a business um, because everyone likes to think it's still 
old boys yeah, down the club yeah. room and mud and cheers to the ladies in the kitchen. But, you know, it, it, it's a, a case of things have moved quite a long way from the ideals that we previously held from for rugby. Um, do I think that this Silver Lake deal will be a silver bullet? No, because I think ultimately it's down to what the value set that's driving these decisions. And I still don't necessarily see how giving more money and that money essentially going to the top percentage of players who are the, you know, the 1% of our game and then meanwhile the 99% who make up everything else, uh, I can't really see how that's going to have the significant change that we need to really turn the ship around and and bring rugby back its relevance. I also don't, you know, think that playing a whole bunch of extra tests when I already don't really care about all black tests because I can watch one every second weekend, uh, it's not necessarily going to be what's going to get me excited about the game. That said, though, I do know that the AIG deal was a big part of uh, saving the Black Fern 15s program. There was a conversation back in 2011 about scrapping 15s for the Black Ferns altogether. And it was when AIG came on and signed that deal that that's basically saved our bacon. So could it be that this uh, is also, you know, I know I've seen the spin. I've seen them talking about how this is going to be the difference of whether we have a super rugby competition or not. Um, I hear that that's happening regardless um, of this deal. But, hey, wouldn't it be good to get some women paid? The I mean, the talk is sort of this can be a saviour for grassroots rugby. I mean, and that this money will find its way to, to that, that tier of the, the game. What is it, from your perspective, that the grassroots game desperately needs? Well, it just needs some love, doesn't it? And I think it's just, it, it's actually a whole change up of how we see things. I just think even like if we look at the stories that come out of uh, NZR itself most of the time, it's always just talking about all blacks and black ferns, all blacks and black ferns. That's great, guys. They're cool. But what about everybody else? I would love to see some more profiles, some more stories, some more yarns about the stuff that's happening in the backyard, you know, the stuff that's happening in our communities. I still think one of the best things I've seen in the last 12 months was the parliamentary old um, old All Blacks game that we had here in Wainui Omata. Because what that was is it was a throwback to what rugby used to be, where you could maybe go down to your local club and see an AB playing there. Now, these type of deals are going to take that chance even further away. But it's that you need to have that emotional connection, that heart connection with the game. And we have that by knowing who each other are and having that personal connection. And so that's where grassroots is important because that's where most people people's interaction with our sport is so you have to give that that love but it doesn't actually have to be money there are so many smart things you can do with volunteer programs there are so many smart things that you can do uh, with like I say just telling better stories but that needs to take some attention and some energy to drive that type of thing and when I saw the cuts that were made uh, by the uh, NZR in the restructure as a result of um, the you know COVID it was a lot the first on the chopping block was all that community stuff and that's where rugby lives, and that's where it grows. So we need to be putting back into there. Joe, I mean, is this going to save grassroots rugby? I mean, we had the Heartland provinces mm. coming out saying they supported the deal, but simply, I thought, you know, it's a numbers game, isn't it? And and people, sort of, the, I mean, the, the female side of the game is growing, mm. but the other the side of the game, the blokes uh, aren't. You yeah. know, they're, they're leaving in droves. Yeah, and I'm not sure how you can't just throw money at that problem and hope it goes away because you're right. Teenage boys are leaving the game in droves. Participation levels at senior level among men's rugby is, is you know, disheartening what's happening there. My old club, Pornikia, I played at 10, 15 years ago. There were twice the number of senior teams as there are now. I mean, just last season, they had to go to the United States to college teams to fill up their Colts under 21 team and make a women's team a reality. So certainly... 
player numbers at club level are dropping and will continue to drop if something's not done. Now, I don't know what needs to be done, but it needs to be probably, like Alice has said, a bit of an overall structural change and some difference in governance and to figure out how why it is that these people are leaving the game and what needs to be done at clubs to get them back because you can't just throw money at it. However, clubs and provincial rugby unions feel somewhat sceptical about whether or not all this money will filter down to the grassroots game, and, and there's good reason for that scepticism. New Zealand Rugby, I'm told, are thinking about putting, you know, there's $460 million, this cash injection initially from Silver Lake. I'm told New Zealand Rugby are going to be putting away around $200 million into cash reserves just for another rainy day, which the provincial unions will be thinking is a little bit too much. They would have liked a little bit more money, I think, than what they will end up getting from this deal. Um, and But they will be told this time exactly probably how to use it. NZR will be a lot more prescriptive with the way that funding needs to be used. They'll make sure the provincial unions tag that funding and show them exactly how they're using that money because I think in the past some of the unions have been a little bit um, less than sort of thorough, I guess, with the way they've spent the money and haven't used it as wisely as they could have. Perhaps they've spent it on a big signing or a player rather than putting it into infrastructure, which they needed to do. So certainly there'll be a little bit more accountability there. Um, I've had people who I've spoken to about the Silver Lake deal who work in rugby who have come from the commercial sector saying, you know, the way New Zealand rugby has handed out money in the past, there's just just no way a bank, for example, would ever have lent the money out the way they did without any kind of tag or accountability or, or measures on it. So that should change. Uh, club rugby are going, well, great, that's good. The provinces are getting the money. What are they going to do for us? New Zealand rugby could say something along the lines of, well, wouldn't it be good to give clubs money directly? The provincial unions will say, no, don't tell us what to do with our club system. So we will see. I guess we will see. But I'm a bit like Alice. I'm fairly sceptical as to how it will impact grassroots and trickle all the way down but there isn't really another option to get any more money so I think that's kind of the feeling overall in the rugby community is that we'll wait and see how it does affect grassroots level or will this money just be put towards propping up the All Blacks and keeping the top players in the country and rather from chasing overseas deals will it actually get down to those lower levels we'll wait and see but there's no other option to get some more money into the game in New Zealand and certainly not to the level of the Silver Lake deal The problem is where is the buck stopped in New Zealand rugby and that's ultimately the issue that you're addressing why the money isn't going to make a difference because the, the little time I've spent trying to advocate and navigate my way through New Zealand rugby systems clubs blame uh, provincial union, unions blame um, NZR, exactly. NZR blames world rugby or it goes back to the provincial unions there's no one that says this is my job to make sure that New Zealand rugby grows. And there's no one that seems to be held accountable to that metric, because if it is, a whole bunch more people would have been fired. That New Zealand board would be gone, uh, because we've seen the steady decline. We've seen a sport that was such a part of our fabric, of our identity, become increasingly irrelevant. And it's been made by a series of a thousand cuts and ultimately been driven by a misunderstanding of its audience and its sport and the way in which sport now exists uh, within our busy lives that these are not going to be full days that we're going to commit to these things just for nothing anymore. So I don't know. I just feel like we, we, we need to get that responsibility in, those checks and those balances. Hey, if it's a commercial partner that makes people actually decide that money that's given needs to be spent in certain ways, well, then bring that on. Rugby, though, is not alone in that, Alice. I mean, it's all sport, club sport, full stop, has got this real problem about trying to stay relevant and and alive. So it's, I mean, you can't just simply say it's rugby that's got this problem. No, but I can say we've done the worst job of it because we've taken something that was, like if you thought New Zealand, you thought rugby. But if you ask anybody under 25 that question, that's not going to be the first thing that they're going to say. So I think we've done a pretty terrible job of it here and making it any type of relevant for young people because it's just not there anymore. 
I just should point out, and it's slightly digressing from the point you're making, Alice, uh, about mm. some of the concerns around the risk associated with the Silver Lake deal. Obviously, if things don't work out as planned and Silver Lake don't make money off this 15% share, well, they could bail out on the deal after one cycle. And then, of course, where does that leave NZR? Possibly with less money than they started out with and in a position where, A, they have to sell that 15% stake to someone else because they can't afford to buy it back themselves. Does that other company have... NZR or rugby's interests at heart. That's a dangerous, potentially risky situation. What happens if they lose money in the Silver Lake deal and then they therefore New Zealand's NZR's 85% stake becomes worth less as well? Who's going to pay for that? Is NZR going to cover that cost? Are some of the players going to have to share some of that risk? Are some of the provincial unions going to share some of that risk? So there's a, there are, you know, these stakeholders and interested parties that want to know exactly how this risk is going to be mitigated or managed by NZR should things go belly up with Silver Lake as well. Joe Porter, Alice Oper, thank you very much for your time on Extra Time this week. Well, on to netball. The ANZ Premiership competition resumed last week and the balance of power appears to have shifted. Defending champs, the Pulse lost first up to the Northern Stars. The Steel comfortably beat last year's runners-up, the Tactics, and the Magic toppled the Mystics. I'm joined now by netball commentator Bridget Tunnicliffe. Bridget, what do these first-up results tell us, if anything? Uh, well, after that first round, I've got no idea who the favourite is now, <laughs> to be completely honest. Um, the first result didn't surprise me that much. The Stars beating the Pulse. The Stars have got a really good team this year, recruiting Anna Harrison and Gina Crampton. The Pulse have had five changes, and they are without uh, Amelia and Ekanasios for the time being. So that was obviously going to have a big impact on the Pulse. Um, the, the, sh- the result that shocked me the most was the Southern Steel beating the Mainland Tactics. Um, a lot of people are saying that the Tactics are the clear favourites this year. They've only had one change from last year's team. Runners-up last year, everything felt aligned for the Tactics to take it out this year. But, you know, hopefully that was the... Every every team sort of has one r- really awful game season. <laughs> they'll be hoping that that was it and that from now on they'll just um, go upwards. So hopefully that was their bad game out of the way. Uh, but, yeah, the Steel coaches will be really thrilled with the shooting combination between uh, English import player George Fisher and Tiana Maturo, who's come down from the Pulse. So they'll be really pleased with that. And that final game, I kind of, um, yeah, I was expecting the Mystics would be too strong for the Magic. The Magic have had the most changes of any of the teams, seven. Uh, And, yeah, a bit of a, really hard to predict with that many changes how the Magic were going to go. But, no, the Magic prevailed. Caitlin Bassett started off a bit slow, but she came good throughout the game. Um, So, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting competition. That, That loss for the tactics, it wasn't just a loss. It was actually a bit of a thumping, wasn't it? Yeah, it, uh, it was weird. Like the tactics just couldn't seem to get out of first gear um, that entire game. They were weirdly flat. Um, really interesting to interested to see how they go against the Stars this Sunday in Papakura. Given the Stars, a lot of people are tipping the Stars might be title contenders. So, you know, how do the tactics bounce back? If they beat the Stars, that would uh, set them up nicely going forward. Other games this round, what are, you, what are you looking for? Yeah, looking forward to see how the Steel back up that amazing round one performance against the Mystics on Saturday. I'm also really, um, really stoked to see that Australian coach Rob Wright will be sidelined now for, for going forward. Um, he is a, 
a former Suncorp Super Netball coach in the Australian system. He is our first male coach um, in the ANZ Premiership, and he is widely regarded as the most strategic mind and uh, strategic thinking coach in netball. So will he make the difference and really get the Mystics playing to their full potential this year? Um, yeah, mentioned Stars Tactics and um, Magic Pulse game on Sunday. Looking forward to seeing how Kelly Drury goes about marking Caitlin Bassett. Uh, they came up against each other quite a lot earlier in Kelly Drury's international career. I think she's probably better equipped now to deal with Bassett. And Bassett, while she had a good round one performance, yeah, got a way to go to be that player, that, that dominating player that she was uh, a couple of years ago. Thanks, Bridget. Top round of netball matches ahead this weekend. With a successful America's Cup defence only a month in their wake, Peter Burling and Blair Tuke are now in Bermuda on their latest sailing quest. Joined by several Team New Zealand teammates, Burling and Tuke head the New Zealand Challenge competing in the International Sail GP League, with the new season getting underway this weekend. A COVID-19 lockdown in the island nation means what was already a tight schedule has become even tighter, with the team's boat only finished and launched for the first time yesterday. Burling told Clay Wilson the lockdown means they are cutting things rather fine. As soon as we landed, we were straight into a COVID test and then you end up waiting for that result to come back and then you can kind of start uh, you know, operating within a very small bubble. And so, yeah, our team's within a bubble, so 11 people in that bubble and that's pretty much the only 11 people we see the whole time we're in Bermuda and everyone else we're pretty much socially distancing from. Or if we're having to get closer than that, making sure you definitely got some PPE on. Yeah, that first day we waited for the negative COVID test that came through. Then we ended up going down to the base through a safety course and out sailing on one of the other team's boats. And that's pretty much been the same for the last two days is that we've ended up doing a two-hour session in, in another team's boats. So I guess that leads into my next question because obviously it sounds like, you know, you have been able to go and do some sailing. So is that just like sailing your boat pretty much? I mean, like, like how prepared do you feel you're going to be come day one of the event? Yeah, I definitely feel like it's been a massive benefit to, to be able to sail the other team's boats. Obviously, they're not your boats. Uh, every boat is slightly different in the same time. But, yeah, it's been pretty interesting to actually be able to learn and see what everyone's been doing across the field. Yeah, for us, we're coming into this relatively cold. Most teams have been here for a little bit longer than us training. And then yeah, also a lot of the teams have come out of doing Every team here did the last event and nearly all the other teams did the, the whole season before that. So you know, a lot of them have done a lot of sailing in this environment and these exact boats. So you know, we really feel like we're on the, the back foot somewhat. But coming into this, we knew we were going to be up against it in these, these first couple of events. You know, the first one, obviously, because uh, our first event is a group. But yeah, then the next two, we're actually um, trying to cover you know, people being away on Olympic duties with Bear, myself and Annie and Josh. But, yeah, for us, it's really about making sure we're um, you know, improving all the time. And if we keep doing that, come late in the season, we'll definitely be in with a shot. Several of you guys are switching over from the Cup. So that switch, how big of a challenge is it switching between the, the one boat or the two boats that you are switching between? Yeah, massively tricky. But in the same regards, you know, a lot of the a lot of the same things make a, a boat go fast or make you get around the track quicker than someone else. And, yeah, throughout our whole careers, pretty much, we've been doing a lot of... Uh, Diverse sailing, which has been you know, incredibly good fun. But you know, I think it's pretty cool to, to be able to join a league like this um, you know, where you're sailing you know, high-performance catamarans against some of the, the best sailors in the world. But you know, for us, the, the other thing that makes us super passionate about it is 
that ability to share the message of you know ocean restoration and protection you know, through our, our charity Live Ocean, which is you know, something that, that means a lot to us as well now. How competitive are you expecting to be in this first event? Oh, I've got no idea, to be honest. And you know, I think that's something that makes it you know, pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, the field's you know, incredibly strong and we've done a, a whole week of sailing and you know, these exact boats with the exact uh, layouts and configurations you know, compared to you know, what we sailed on Bermuda. The boats are actually you know, relatively different. But you know, in saying that, I think we've got a pretty amazing group. So we'll be learning, learning pretty quick and up for taking it all. That's Peter Burling talking to Clay Wilson, head of round one of the Sail GP League in Bermuda. A former Olympian says some gymnastics coaches are feeling battered and bruised in the wake of a review into the sport. An independent review of Gymnastics New Zealand was undertaken following accusations of abuse. TriStar Gymnastics General Manager David Phillips, who competed at the 2000 Olympics, has told Felicity Reid that while there's been plenty of agreement around the review's findings and it's been empowering for athletes, that's not the case for everyone. By and large, there's a lot of agreement with the review findings. And I think it's been quite empowering, particularly for the athletes, to have some of the things verbalised and stated in such um, a clear way. So I, I know, certainly looking at our athletes, there is a sense of um, of empowerment that's come from both our activities, but also um, having... Uh, behaviours named really clearly as unhelpful or or not appropriate for our setting. So, you know, the, the coaches uh, in the review um, probably feel a bit battered and bruised, um, and I think in some cases that's appropriate, and in other cases not so much. And and so it's just kind of supporting them through uh, the review recommendations. In some ways, you seem to be moving a little bit quicker than Gymnastics New Zealand. Was it your plan to make sure that once all of the review recommendations came out that you were quite quick to act on some of the things? The breadth of the review was so large that it was going to take time for some of those recommendations to be turned into something actionable from GNZ. So we're aware of the resource restrictions that everybody in gymnastics has and so we wanted to just you know, take some steps that were proactive and we knew they'd be positive steps. And then if it was required that we modify and adapt as recommendations come through, then we have the ability to do that as well. So what we've done at the club are a number of things We've formed um, an athlete wellbeing advisory group within kind of our club alumni network, and we're, we're really fortunate to be a, a club at a at a size where we do have those kind of resources, and we have somebody uh, on that group who is a psychologist. We have a couple of physios, we have a strength and conditioning coach, uh, someone who's done a bit of work with pastoral care, um, community work, and uh, as well as a. A representative from the club who sort of reflects the athletes. That's David Phillips of TriStar Gymnastics. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time. My thanks to Joe Porter and Alice Soper for joining us. Extra Time's available every Friday from about 4pm. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, iHeartRadio and of course rnz.co.nz. Give us a rating if you would. That helps a whole lot and means other listeners can find us much more easily. I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.